allow me to add my word of welcome to you all as we are continuing in this series that we are calling Church Made for More. The reason we're doing this is because in our society today, there are a lot of assumptions about what the church is. And the reality is that most of those assumptions are a far cry from what God always intended the church to be. And so we together are looking at the book of Acts, this book, which actually was the chronicle of the earliest days of the church when it was first forming to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be the church, not just go to church? How does that shape how we live, especially as we relate to the world around us? And really, the first two weeks of the series was kind of answering this overarching question of who is the church? What we see is that the church is a a group of people who've been swept up into the larger story of God. And as a result, they kind of form a new family, a new community, one which is characterized by prayer and love and unity, all of which flows from God's grace. It flows out in works of generosity and service and witness to others. And now as we move into weeks three, four, and five, we're now starting to answer the question of why? Why is the church, why does the church exist? What is our purpose as God's people? And so as we make that shift, I really want to address those of you who maybe are just starting to check Trinity out for the first time. This may sound a lot like insider language. Maybe you're not even really sure if you want to be a part of the church, much less this church. But here's my word of encouragement to you. I'm really glad that you're with us on this journey. Because I think a lot of us have misconceptions about what church is all about. Some of us may have actually had encounters with the church that left us with like a bad taste in our mouth. And if that's you, maybe you're here reluctantly because somebody kind of encouraged you to come along. Let me just say a word of welcome to you. I know what it's like to be in your shoes. I wasn't raised going to church. My parents started taking me when I was just a freshman in high school. And honestly, at that time, I really didn't understand what the whole point of church was. I saw it as kind of this select religious group of people who got together because they liked to, but didn't really make any sort of difference in the wider world. And if that's you, again, I think that this weekend's message is a great one for you because what we see is that the mission of the church is actually far bigger and more world-changing than we might have initially believed. And so this is your invitation to listen along with us, to re-examine your assumptions about church, maybe even to leave some of those at the door. And as we look at the, the life of the early church to recapture what church was always meant to be. Because what we find in our passage for today, is that the mission of the church is a boundary-breaking, culture-crossing kind of mission. Here's what I mean. Acts chapter 8, the passage that was just read a few moments ago, is really a turning point in the entire story. You see, up until this point, the church was kind of confined to Jerusalem, and it was made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus who believed that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah and Savior. But when it came to being kind of a a cross-cultural, multi-ethnic community, they weren't quite there yet. Because, again, they, they saw their calling and their mission to be to their fellow Jewish people, to point them to their long-awaited king. And yet here in Acts chapter 8, everything changes. Because what we see is that God actually moves his church, his people, into places and spaces that they wouldn't have willingly gone otherwise. 
Here's what I mean. When we look at this story, what we find is, is we encounter a guy by the name of Philip. He was one of the leaders of the early church. And, and what ended up happening was that uh, God's people were starting to experience some persecution in Jerusalem. Uh, the Jewish leaders and teachers of the law were not only threatened by this message of Jesus as the Messiah, but they'd actually started to work and to fight against it. And so the church is scattered. The people have to leave Jerusalem. They have to leave their, their comfortable place because it's no longer comfortable. It's actually no longer safe for them. And Philip ends up having some encounters in two places that would have been very, very surprising. We find that he first goes to Samaria to preach the good news of Jesus there. And then later on, we find him in the very same chapter, walking along a desert road and having a conversation with a man from Ethiopia. These were shocking because of the differences that existed between Philip and kind of his Jewish community and the communities that he's now interacting with. Here's what I mean. Let's, let's take the Samaritans for just a moment. There is a long history of hostility between the Jewish and the Samaritan people in, in Philip's day. In fact, for the two centuries prior, there had been these kind of ongoing ethnic tensions between these two groups of people. Episodes of violence and hostility between Jews and Samaritans. They really didn't get along. In fact, it was so bad that Jewish people wouldn't walk through Samaritan towns or villages. And likewise, Samaritans often wouldn't walk through Jewish communities. That's how serious these tensions had been. And the reason why is because they not only were different ethnic groups at this point, but they were different religiously. They didn't believe the same things. They shared a couple of things in common, but, but the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as heretics. And in fact, what we find in Acts chapter 8 is that this community that Philip goes to has actually been taken in by a religious charlatan. This is definitely the wrong neighborhood for Philip to be doing ministry. If he'd asked any of his fellow friends in the church if he should go down to Samaria to share about Jesus, they probably would have laughed at him and thought that that was ridiculous. And yet what we find is Philip goes down to Samaria and with joy begins telling them about the hope that he has in Jesus. Likewise, a little bit later on, we find him on a desert road where he encounters an Ethiopian. We learn that this man is actually a eunuch in the court of the Ethiopian queen. And again, this is a very unlikely person for Philip to be interacting with. Not only is he a cultural and ethnic outsider, but he would have been a religious outsider as well. In fact, as a eunuch, he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple complex in Jerusalem. According to the law in Deuteronomy 23.1, uh, because he was a eunuch, he, he's not allowed to be in the assembly of God's people. On top of it, there are massive socioeconomic differences between him and Philip. He would have been a rich royal official whom Philip would have never had a chance to associate with under normal circumstances. This is the wrong person for Philip to be talking to. And yet what we find is there Philip is in his chariot talking to this man about Jesus. In this chapter, what we find is Philip is in the wrong neighborhood talking to the wrong people. And yet he does so with joy. Why? And it's because God's mission knows no limits. I mean, in the ancient world, what we need to realize is that a person's religion was often restricted to their cultural or national identity. 
In the ancient world, every country had its own gods. And people saw that as just natural. Your religion was for you. My religion is for me. Just live and let live. We don't really interact. Our, our, our faith is our own. In fact, even the ancient Jewish people saw their religion that way. I mean, if you wanted to, to, to join them, you had to become culturally Jewish. It wasn't just about adopting their theology or their beliefs. It was about changing the entire way you lived, what you ate, how you dressed, whom you associated with. And yet from the very beginning, what we learn is that God's desire was to break down the barriers that existed between people. As we learned at the beginning of this series, right in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this. He says, you are to be different. You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. From the beginning, Jesus says, my people have a much bigger mission. You are called to go, to cross boundaries, to cross cultures in order to bring people good news. In fact, this week I was uh, reading a blog post on Boston University's School of Theology website, and this is what the author of the blog post said. He said, the study of world Christianity begins with the basic premise that Christianity is, and from its very inception has been, a cross-cultural and diverse religion with no single dominant expression. You see, Christianity is built on the assumption that all people are made in God's image. And his heart is to love and to draw all people into his family. There is a belief at the heart of our faith that it is possible for people from every background to live together in harmony, not in spite of their diversity, nor by erasing it, but by embracing it as a beautiful gift from God that's, uh, that's all empowered by God's grace. And, and the reality is, is that this uniqueness remains true today. I don't know if you've really thought about this, but in college, I spent some time studying the world's religions. That's actually what my degree was in, was in religious studies. And, and what I found is that this unique uh, characteristic of Christianity remains to this day. Here's what I mean. Hinduism is, is designed for Indians living in the caste system. If you want to be a Hindu, you have to be an Indian person who was born into a specific caste if you're going to essentially do Hinduism right. Likewise, Buddhism has no cross-cultural mandate. Furthermore, Islam actually demands cultural uniformity. If you're going to be a Muslim, the only way you can legitimately read your scriptures is by reading them in Arabic. Everything else is seen as an interpretation and not truly the word of God. Furthermore, if you're going to be a good Muslim, you have to model your life, your habits and behaviors on the life and the habits of Muhammad. It means that how he ate, how he lived, even right down to the way that he looked is seen as like the ideal for being a Muslim person, but Christianity is different. Only Christianity has this vision of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together before the throne and before the Lamb. A community of people whose diversity is not seen as a liability, but as an asset and a gift. One which reflects, uh, which reflects in all of its fullness the beauty of who God is and who he's called us to be. You see, the reason that Philip crosses these boundaries and crosses cultures is because that's who, what God has called him to do. 
It's actually at the very heart of God that we would enter into relationships with people who are different from we are and invite them into this deeper experience of walking with God and discovering his purposes for their lives. And so we, I think we have to pause at this moment and ask ourselves, are we willing to do the same? You see, too often we, we write other people off because of the perceived differences. We look at the fact that they might have different religious beliefs or different opinions or philosophies of life and say, you know, that's, that's just too hard for me to speak into. I don't, I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. So I'm, I'm not even going to go there. Or, or we're, we feel like we're called to cross uh, boundaries or to leave our comfort zones to reach people. And we don't because of the discomfort that it, le- that it leaves us with. But the reality is, is God says, no, I want you to cross those boundaries. I want you to enter into those spaces of relationship with people who are different from you. But to be a Christian isn't about getting outside of our comfort zone, because that assumes that we can go back into it. Being a Christian means allowing God to expand our comfort zones to embrace other people. So who's that person? That person that you're thinking about that you're like, I could never share my faith with them. That person that you're thinking about, there's no way that they would want to hear about Jesus or to hear about God. The encouragement for you this weekend is to bring that before the Lord in prayer, to realize that maybe that's exactly the person God is sending you to. Maybe that's exactly the community that you are called to reach. They're in your life for a reason, and God's heart goes out to them, and he's inviting you to join him in that mission. And we know that this is God's heart because at every point in the story, God is the one who's actually directing his people outwards. What we find is that uh, as we look at Acts chapter 8, how much it reflects exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. I mean, in Acts chapter 8, he told them that they were going to leave Jerusalem, that they were going to go to Judea and to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And where do we find Philip? We find him not in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. We find him talking not to fellow Jews, but to this guy from Ethiopia, from the heart of Africa. It's clear that at every moment in Acts chapter 8, God is the one who's orchestrating these divine encounters. It's the Holy Spirit that leads Philip to Samaria. It's the Holy Spirit that puts him on that desert road that prompts him to jump up into the chariot and to talk with this man. And that's what's so beautiful about Philip is that he listens He listens to God as God moves him outward. But more than listening to God, he actually listens to the people that he's sitting across the table from. I actually love it how Philip begins his whole dialogue with this Ethiopian by asking a question. As he's running alongside his chariot, it says that he actually hears someone reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran up to the man, heard him reading the Isaiah, the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? What what I love is that rather than adopting the posture of a street corner evangelist or a fire and brimstone preacher, Philip takes the posture of a spiritual director. He's someone who's deeply curious about the spiritual lives of those around him. And he's eager to see where God is at work in their hearts. 
Again, I think sometimes the, the reason the church has a bad rap is because Christians have, have often tried to force their faith down people's throats without actually hearing people's stories. And yet what we see here is that Philip is so spiritually curious that he enters in with a posture of receptivity, of listening and questioning and learning. And that's another thing that's just so, so beautiful about the Christian faith is that the Christian faith treats questions of spirituality with utter seriousness. For, for us, religion isn't something quaint or backwards. Uh, deeper questions about life aren't treated as temporary explorations born of psychological or emotional weakness. No, rather, what we see spiritual questions is fundamentally important to the lives of those around us, and that we are called to attend to that deep work within another person. Often in our worlds today, questions of faith and spirituality are just kind of shoved to the side or, or kind of treated in passing. But for us as, as followers of God, we know that the spiritual life is something deep and, and unique to each person, that it's a part of who they are, that these questions aren't abnormal, they're natural. And our desire should be to step into those moments and discover what God is doing in that person's life. I remember a couple of years ago coming across this amazing quote from the author Eugene Peterson about the beauty that comes when we enter in with a, spirit, with a posture of spiritual curiosity. Here's what he says. He says, God is always doing something. An act of grace is shaping this person's life into a mature salvation. Each soul is unique. No wisdom can simply be applied without discerning the particulars of this life, this situation. Spiritual direction means taking seriously with disciplined attention and imagination what others only take casually. All those moments in life when awareness of God breaks through the crust of our routines, a burst of praise, a pang of guilt, an episode of doubt, boredom and worship even. See, being a spiritual director means a readiness to clear space and arrange time, to look at these elements of our life that are not at all peripheral, but are central, unobtrusive signs of transcendence. I love how he ends that unobtrusive signs of transcendence. He says that there is a spiritual reality to life. And, and for Christians, we are curious about that. Our deepest desire is to, is to not only listen to the deep questions and longings of people's hearts, but to point them to the God who alone can satisfy those longings. We are called to be spiritually curious about the people around us. And so that, again, is a moment for pause and reflection. Are we attending to what's going on in the spiritual lives of the people around us? Are we attending to the questions that we ourselves have deep in our hearts? You see, those are the very places that God wants to meet you. Those are the very places that he's called us as God's people to step into, to explore together, to wrestle our way through. Because when that happens, that's where true transformation takes place. That's where that is a divine encounter, not just between us and the person across from us, but between us and them and God the one who himself is not only calling us to cross boundaries and to cross cultures, but to enter into each other's lives and into each other's hearts. Are we spiritually curious? Are we willing to ask the deep questions and explore together? 
See, that's exactly what God calls us to, because when we do, we have an opportunity to get a front row seat to the kind of life transformation that only God can bring. That's sort of the last point that I want to leave us with today is the fact that, that when we do this, life transforming faith takes root. I don't know if you noticed this as we went through these passages and as they were read earlier, but in both encounters in Samaria and with the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, they both end with the same thing. They both end with joy. It says that when Philip was preaching and casting out unclean spirits and, and healing many who had various diseases or ailments in Samaria, it says there was much joy in that city. That after sharing with the Ethiopian man about the hope that he had in Jesus, it says this. It says, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. This is what's so uh, amazing is, is joy is the result of sharing good news with other people. And the reason why, where, where that joy comes from is because these people have finally encountered a God who loves them who loves them so much that he's willing to break every boundary, to cross every threshold in order to win them back to himself. The Samaritans and the Ethiopian man up to that point had been told that they weren't welcome in God's presence, that they weren't a part of God's family, a part of God's community. And yet here's Philip as an ambassador of Jesus saying, God has put me here because he has a message for you, a message of his love for you of the transformation he desires to bring in your life. What Philip's very presence showed them is that he showed them Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but Philip's whole posture sounds like the one that he follows, doesn't it? Just like Jesus, Philip is pursuing outcasts and exiles. Just like Jesus, he's, he's loving the overlooked and spending time with the downtrodden. Just like Jesus, he's journeying with the wayward in order to draw them back to God. In Philip, people were encountering God himself. Philip is simply living like the one that he followed. And when we do that, we have a chance to see how God can bring transformation into other people's lives. Because when, when someone experiences the loving presence of God, that kind of radical, grace-filled acceptance, we can't help but do anything else other than to rejoice. So again, a question we have to ask ourselves is, are we joining Jesus in his mission of loving people into God's joy? We're really going to talk about this a lot more next week, but, but we have the immense privilege of getting a front row seat to the work of God in the lives of of the people around us. Some of the happiest moments of my life are moments when I got to see someone who previously had been holding God at arm's distance enter into a relationship with Jesus for the very first time. Those moments when somebody that I previously had thought would never in a million years be open to the gospel comes up to me and says, I want to follow Christ. And then to see the transformation that comes when they begin to live out of that faith is, is just something that you just can't even describe the kind of joy. And I have to imagine that that's only a sliver of what God himself feels. When people suddenly encounter his joy and his love and his grace for the very first time, you see, that's our job. That's why the church exists, is to partner with what God is already doing in the lives of those around us 
to join them in that place and to point them toward the one who is calling them to himself, that they too might experience the joy that only he can give. That's why we're here. That's our mission, is to bring God's good news of salvation and hope, new life and joy into the lives of those around us to attend to the deeper questions that they're wrestling with and point them to the God who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of their hearts. That's why we're here. The question is, are we paying attention? Are we curious? Are we willing to allow God to expand our comfort zones to embrace the people around us? Because that's what it means to be the church. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we give you so much thanks that this mission is so much bigger than anything else we could have ever hoped or dreamed of. That being the church is about so much more than staying within our four walls. It's about busting out of those four walls to cross boundaries, to reach the people that you are already pursuing, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would expand our comfort zones toward that end, that you would help us to have a spiritual curiosity about those to whom you are sending us, Lord. Because you are the God who ultimately crossed every boundary in order to rescue us. That you left your throne in heaven to come down into this world to call us your own. And Lord, we pray that we likewise would have that very same posture that your grace to us would flow outwards, would move us beyond man-made boundaries and borders so that together we might be your witnesses to a world that is so desperately in need of the love that only you can give. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. And together we say, amen.